0: Listening to
1: Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise.
2: Hi everyone. Uh, Welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention uh, Roundtable. Uh, Don't get to do too many of these. So this is super exciting. Uh, I get to uh, hang out with some of my favorite people uh, in the whole world from all around the world. Um, Really delighted to have you guys all on today. Uh, We're going to be talking about starting a game studio, which, uh, believe it or not, I think most people in the gaming industry have this like secret desire to be able to start their own studio and have that full creative uh, capabilities of you know impacting games and stuff. So uh, it, it's on a lot of people's minds. You know, should I start a studio? Should I join a studio? What's the actual process of doing it if I want to take that leap? And, and when do I do that? So just a lot of a lot of different things. So uh, we thought let's pull together a forum of experts who have all been starting uh, really successful studios uh, lately. Um, and just kind of dive into things, but uh, before we do, uh, maybe we can just kind of go around and, and do some intros. Uh, Sophie, would you maybe want to go first?
3: Mm-hmm. Hi everyone. Oh, sorry, <coughs> first <laughs> first pitch of the day, and I, I was listening a lot during the day. Didn't talk much actually. So hi everyone. Um, so yeah, I'm Sophie. I'm the lead of a studio in Berlin with Voodoo, and I started a new studio. Two. It's been uh, oh, two years. Two years ago, actually, yeah, uh, the first casual studio in a hyper casual company, and uh, yeah, two years after, we are a team of fourteen people. We have launched our first game, uh, trying to grow and scale it. Um, so yeah, building it from scratch, and happy to share insights uh, with the panel today. Cool.
2: Uh, Peter, do you want to go next?
1: Yeah. So hi, I'm Peter. I'm from Bangalore, India. I'm the co founder and you know, chief product officer and the main instigator of uh, <laughs> super, huge, super Huge Studios. Uh, we've been like, it's a brand new studio. We've just uh, been around for six months. I've been making uh, games for 12 years now. And uh, I've been making games since I was 11 years old. So that's practically everything I've been doing with my entire life. And uh, right now we have a team of about eight to 10 people, depending on how you count it. We have people all around the world. We are working from home. We are making awesome stuff and we are having fun doing it.
0: That's amazing. Mike. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, I'm Mike. I am CEO of Tailwind Studios. Um, We're a content creation studio on the Roblox platform. So we've been around for eight months now. Um, My background is I've been a game designer for 15 years. Um, So some of my kind of big hits were working uh, at Jagex where I started out on RuneScape and some other titles Um, and then uh, I went to Spain in Barcelona um, and then came back um, via India um, and then worked uh, for King for a few years on Farm Hero Saga and some other games um, and then did a bit of consultancy and then stumbled into Roblox, which I'll probably talk a little bit more about later. But yeah, that's my background. We're currently 10 people full time remotely, but all in the UK. That's
2: awesome. Yeah, and, and one other thing that I would just call out, uh, Sophie has recently started Rise and Play where she goes into a lot of vision stuff that I'm sure we'll cover later, but uh, we'll, we'll definitely put a link in there. And for anyone thinking about a studio, I highly recommend watching all of her videos and listening to uh, all the things that she puts out because she really takes a great approach to uh, thinking about building a great team too. But uh, yeah, with that, uh, let's dive into it. Oh, and uh, I'm Tom Hammond, uh, co-founder and CEO CEO of UserWise. Um, but uh, yeah, so let's maybe start with what games you guys are currently playing and why, because I, I think that's a fascinating thing. I can go first. Uh, I've been playing a bunch of League of Legends Wild Rift because I thought that it would be really fun to do a podcast episode with my friend, where we uh, break down the game and the live ops and things, and both of us ended up playing way too much uh, <laughs> Wild Rift. I, I think I'm gonna have to uninstall it. We just did the podcast like a couple days ago, and I got to playing like four hours a day on this thing, and I was like, okay, I, I need to cut it out. But uh, just really fun game, and they they do such a beautiful job of uh, psychological implementation and the way that they translated this pc game to a mobile experience like i would have thought that it was basically impossible and yet they did it and they just made the controls so elegant it, it just makes sense to me so really really jiving with that game mike you want to go next
0: yeah i will go next um, yeah but that's that's awesome tom um, i love that game too um i guess two games that i'm playing a lot of at the moment right so civilization six it's like a guilty pleasure it's a comfort game i've been playing civ games like ever since the first one came out and it was kind of like my lockdown game so i was like heading to the airport to go on my stag bachelor party um so i like i downloaded civ after not playing it for a while on my phone i was like this is what i'm gonna play on 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 the plane journey get into it and then that got cancelled because of lockdown so like we literally had to cancel that like as i was going to the airport And then the next year and a half ever since, I've just been playing a lot of Civ 6, like all the expansions. It's like, it's really relaxing. I love strategy games naturally. Um, It's got so much depth. I haven't got a, there's no pressure because I'm playing by myself. Uh, I I just really enjoy that game. Um, And I'm also playing a lot of this game called Pet Simulator X on Roblox, which came Mm -hmm. out a couple of weeks ago. And it's just got those compulsion loops. It's like it's kind of like adventure capitalist or like cookie clicker but in a 3d roblox space and people are around hanging out a little bit as well it's got kind of social elements to it and it just kind of taps into those core psychological motivators of constantly progressing on various levels multiple goals and i'm just a sucker for that so i'm enjoying it at the moment
2: awesome
0: sophie you want to go next
2: yeah,
3: so uh, mine are more on also in the realm of the uh, games, of course, I make. Uh, so, more puzzle oriented. So, the ones that uh latest marked me the most is also a project makeover. So, I've been actually very, uh, yeah, very well done, very complete game. Uh, nice music. Uh, I think it's a case where uh, I, when I was playing it, I even asked myself, if we were to make a game like this with our team of 14 is it even possible i think there are i don't know how many there are but there seem to be quite many but super polish game and sets the bar really high uh, when it comes to this casual expanded version I uh, hybrid and another one that was quite interesting uh, called the match 3d uh because of course being at Voodoo, i also look and play a lot of hyper casual game and this one is a bit of an alien in the sense that it has a lot of in-app chase and it's much really you have a grid and then you have a lot of pairs of uh, objects you have to find and throw out of the board to put them together and uh, clear them so it's very satisfying uh, asmr and uh, when i look at that penny they convert a lot as well with an app purchase which is very surprising for me so this is at least the only case I know that has the appeal of a hyper casual game with a monetization that something looks like a match It's an exception. I haven't seen so many, but for me, it's been fascinating to understand like why people would spend in a game like that. And so, so yeah, I learned always something new when I try these
1: games. Yeah.
2: That's awesome. What about you, Peter?
1: <laughs> I have um okay, uh I could say that this is sort of a guilty pleasure, but I've been playing a lot of mobile games all this while, you know, there's always something new to learn. And uh about six months ago, I kind of like you know put a halt to that. I'm like, let me let me play something that is visceral, something that is intense, something that is super immersive. So when uh I took myself to the mall, bought a um, uh, a steering wheel rig. I don't know what you call it. It's a sim rig, a racing rig with the seats and everything. And I started playing a lot of these simulation games and I'm kind of addicted to WRC right now. So, <laughs> so that's what is happening. And uh, it's not like, unlike mobile games, I'm, I'm loving this break. So I can just go out there and play it. And it's like, to 15 minutes of like full focus raising, and it feels very intense compared to the <laughs> mobile games I was playing. And I'm not coming back because of meta loops or because there is uh, compulsions like that. I'm coming in for the you know the inherent motivation to just play and beat my own, uh, you know, uh, yeah, time. And I kind of like that because that is the way I started playing games when I was like, you know, uh, 10, 11 years old. And that was what games are about. So I'm kind of going back and getting in touch with why I started playing in the first place. You know, uh, it kind of got, for me, uh, when I went to, when I, when when mobile games got to the level where it was like, you know, uh, Adventure Capitalist, There was like, it was all meta layer and not really much of gameplay. As in, there was no traditional sense of gameplay there. It's basically a humongous pile of meta layers implemented in UI. (laughs) I I wanted to, like, you know, go back and be like, feel, I wanted to feel how it felt to just raise and, you know, be in the moment. So I kind of got addicted to that. It's been six months going right now. So (laughs) this is the phase I'm going through.
2: You know, the other day I was dialoguing with someone of, like, what does retention actually mean? And, like, what's the real driver of it? And at the end of the day, we kind of got back to that moment of, when something just feels really good, like, you know, in candy crush, you know, it could be, you, you play the whole level failing so many times and you finally set up like the two really big explosions beside each other and you get to blow up everything on the last move and win the level. Like it feels really good. You're playing league of legends and you end up cleaning up and you're the, the MVP and you like carry your team in. Like, it just feels really good. And you can just keep kind of coming back because you want that same sort of sensation of probably the same thing you get when you beat your time right. it, it just right. feels really like you don't really need any of that other stuff there to really drive those experiences so i, I love that um it's really
1: uh, great my kind of understanding was that you know all the other stuff all the meta layers the reactivation mechanics all the compulsions are there to amplify the core you know uh need to come back and experience the you know fun the thrill of gameplay again but then, you know, mobile games have gotten to a point where, you know, it's it's not that simple. Yeah. Sometimes the core engagement, the core thrill of playing something is so minute and the very small thing is like amplified. And sometimes even like uh, that motivation to come back is purely uh, manifested out of those uh, meta layers instead of, you know, taking that thrill, uh, the inherent thrill of gameplay and amplifying it. Yeah. So it kind of feels good to go back.
2: Yeah, those emotional highs and lows. I love it. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how each of you became a studio founder. Uh, Sophie, would you like to start? You know, what, what's your story that led you to starting your own studio?
3: Yeah, so uh, I can also share a bit about my background. So Before I, I started the studio at Voodoo, I was working uh, uh, as product lead mostly in companies like Rovio, Wooga, also at Gameloft. So I have learned, I would say, the way of how to build a product from scratch, so a team in, um, in an organization. And um, f- for me, the main limiting factor was uh, the culture I wanted to set in the team uh, because it's also very determined by the culture of a company, priorities, and uh, oftentimes I found myself having to just prioritize always uh, products, uh, roadmap, changes, etc., and very little for the team uh, or the people part, human part that was really important to me and that makes the work meaningful as well for me. So I made the conclusions the only way that I could do meaningfully the work I want is to do it on my own. And I, I was lucky actually when I was... Um, considering different roads, So I was also thinking about starting my own company. Um, Vodou approached me as well with the opportunity like, hey, we are looking to expand. We give a a lot of ownership to build a new studio. You choose where you are located. So I had the choice between Helsinki or Berlin or anywhere Paris even. I chose Berlin because it was to me a better hub to uh, hire people as well. And I had my uh, network still there. And also the way we work with uh, Voodoo is that we, uh, so there's a lot of ownership on the how, a bit less, I would say on the what. Of course, I'm still like working at Voodoo, uh, trying to leverage the DNA of a company in terms of hyper casual marketability. However, I had total freedom on who I hire, uh, how I set up the culture in the studio, or processes um, and, the good part of it is, I can do as I envision it, but I had to do it all by myself. So I had, uh, I didn't have much support ever, but that's why I did the masterclass because uh, then I had to build the system for myself and thought of sharing it because probably I was not the only one starting with, you know, zero support, like, not no staff to go out there, source people. Um, but yeah, that's how
0: I started. That's
2: great, Mike. How did you become a studio founder?
0: Yeah, I think you, you kind of summed up the motivations yourself really well in the intro um, to this session where you kind of said that I think deep down a lot of people in the industry have always wanted it. And I think I'm kind of one of those as well. And it really kind of started to, I started to get the itch while I was at King. Um, and like King is a fantastic place to work. I met some really great people and learned a lot while I was there. Um, but I would say, at some point, working in a big corporation like that, you kind of lose a sense of autonomy. Um, in, uh, so, in terms of decision making, um, and and uh, maybe sometimes decisions can feel like they're very business led and like lack a bit of kind of input as a designer. So like uh, if someone who, who who's always been a designer, so yeah, you, you kind of want that creative control. Um, so when I moved on from King, um, I was kind of in the, I was kind of thinking, oh yeah, I'll like start my own indie thing. I'll like work on my own gaming unity. Um, so I started that over a weekend. And then by the Monday I had a call from a recruiter who was like, hey, do you want to do some consulting? And then that kind of turned into a three-year consultancy sort of thing that I was doing and working with some amazing founders, like um, small companies some medium companies um and and yeah just like learning loads about the startup space um and it was kind of like during that period that i encountered uh, roblox and um so there was a, a studio called super social who are one of the first professional studios making games for the roblox platform um so i came on board there as a contract game design director um and i was working with them for six months um they didn't really have any gaming experts in their founding team. So I kind of took on that role and really helped like with the um, early hires, um, setting up the processes, working on the design for the first game and, and really getting them off the ground. And then when that contract came to an end in November last year, I was like right I'm not ready to finish with Roblox like the opportunity is insane like 43 million month sorry 43 million daily active users like over 200 million monthly active users just so much to love about the platform I had this deep ambition to always do it it kind of came together with the way that the kind of team formed as well which I'll touch on a bit later on but yeah it was that kind of perfect storm of of circumstances that was like now is the time to just do that thing I've always wanted to do so that's kind of how we formed Tailwind love it Peter?
1: So uh, this is the second company I founded. Uh, the first time I did it, uh, it was a lot of fun, but we did it for the wrong reasons. So I was start- working in a, a startup and uh, kind of uh, had the feeling that uh, a lot of the games that we were working on was uh, rushed out. And I felt that if we uh, did it right, we could make much better games. And I tried to put some changes there. And I felt that you know it's not going to happen. They were focusing on volume our quality so i kind of broke off quit and start my own started my own thing and i just wanted to do better than the company that i now left because it was a personal mission for me and the thing is we managed to do that it was just me and two of my friends who joined up we managed to do that in the first 3 months and then what so we kind of like you know had fun for the next two and a half years we made games that we want to play and uh, we found publishers for it and it, we uh, had a profit and uh, we were like a rock band. We were having fun doing our own thing. The thing is, we did not have a big ambition. We just had wanted to have fun and you know, we did that. And after about two and a, two and a half years of doing that, we kind of broke up like a rock band again. Like we just got bored with it and went our separate ways. And the thing is, uh, we literally failed at making a huge impact just because uh, we were, you know, we were, we had, a, you know, not, we didn't have a big enough ambition. So that's the worst way to fail because we succeeded in what we wanted to do but it just wasn't big enough and then you know I spent about 10 years working in a lot of companies working uh, with some really awesome people learning from the best at one point at Moonfrog I was working directly under Mark Skaggs who used to be the uh, uh, the VP of games at Zynga he's a guy who made Farmville and whatnot so that was a humongous opportunity. I worked with him, and he was a little mentor to me. He was the executive producer on that project, and I was the producer. And uh, I've had a lot of people like this who came in and I could learn from. And then I, I've always wanted to do the next, you know, do a game studio and do it right, at this time with ambition, right? And uh, I always thought it's going to happen about, you know, 2024, 2025, somewhere. And then this old friend called me up and uh, he's one of the you know oldest people in the indian game industry uh, in 97 when the first real game studio was founded in india he was part of the core team and uh, he's much older than me much more wiser <laughs> much more stable and uh, you know he called me up and said like hey uh, i've got funding i'm starting something and you're the first person i'm calling and uh, the moment I got that call, I abandoned my job. I was at Pune. I relocated 1,500 kilometers back to Bangalore. Uh, I got a house here. I moved in within about two weeks. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm living right next to the office, where the office is going to be. I'm like, let's talk. <laughs> so uh, I had to just jump in. So I was planning this. I knew that I had to learn this, 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 and to get to this point in my life, at which point I can confidently do my startup. And I was very close to there but then you know sometimes all of the things just fall into place it's like a it's like a tetris game it's like everything is packed up and you just need a long piece and it comes along and we can't be like okay maybe next time right it it just falls into place and you have to go for it so my you know my gut feel my brain my heart everything screams like abandon your job go join with Joshi and do it. So I did. So I, me and Joshi, were heading this team. Joshi is the you know, senior guy that I was talking about. So uh, this is a lot of fun. And uh, I'm loving that you know, the that risk that I took has been totally worth it. And I'm loving being able to work with a tight team who's all aligned in the same direction. We got uh, creative control. We have a nice little runway. We know what we are building. We are very confident in the product strategy that we have adopted, and everybody is pushing in the same direction. So it feels great. It's like a, uh, it's like a awesome, you know, uh, sports team. Everybody knows what they are doing, and we can read each other's mind, and uh, it's just coming along really well right now.
2: That's so so exciting. Cool. Um... What's one thing that most people don't realize about starting a studio? Sophie, do you want to take that one first?
1: Oh,
3: mm-hmm. um, well, I think it's it's probably still happening and I'll talk here based on my own experience. Um, but when uh, building a studio, there's a lot of, uh, uh, and for good reason, focus on uh, what is the game I, I will build. So what is the game that I'm trying to build first, and so uh, figuring it out, having like the thing spec'd out and so on. And uh, the reality is that uh, it starts first with the people, because if you don't have the staff eh, even to make the game or to prototype or to develop or co-founding team, uh, then you don't really have a studio. So uh, it's a bit it's it's a counterintuitive to think okay, then you. Uh, and there's uh, this reference from good to great, uh, where you first you put the right people on the bus and then uh, you find where you go together with the bus instead of like uh, drive first with the bus and on people on the bus. So I do, be, I like this analogy and I do believe in that um, and trust the process that you will find where people are the strongest at the most expertise like the group you have created. And then going somewhere. Of course, you have some high-level direction, but I'm talking here specific. Like I have this game vision, and this is the one we have to make. Uh, I think first get the people, and then you have uh, the vision uh, more clearly about the game. Mm,
1: like that,
2: Peter. What's uh, one thing most people don't realize about starting a studio?
1: Okay, I learned this quite recently okay uh, this is this is obvious when i once i say it but then you know uh, i learned how true this is quite recently the, the the principle goes that you know no plan no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy and that is true in terms of everything literally i started with a product strategy and then i talked to the target market and uh, we had epiphanies like we realized that you know uh, a lot of the assumptions that we build the product strategy on weren't you know it simply doesn't hold water so we had to be agile in the sense that when we talk to our players when we get data that indicates how their uh, in-game behavior is we should always be uh you know ready to understand accept those uh, you know feedback and you know uh, evolve your product strategy and you know, change and another thing is like when it comes to hiring and you cannot ever hire the exact person you are hiring for. Uh, It's all like, you know, jigsaw puzzles. People are all like jigsaw puzzles and you want to find ways in which they fit together, but they're not like, you know, regular shaped, regularly shaped jigsaw puzzles, they're wonky. When you interview somebody, you put them through three, three rounds of tests and four rounds of interviews. You think you understand the person, but then he comes in and the first time you hit a crisis situation, a release is delayed. And then you realize that, oh, man, this guy tends to panic and do the wrong stuff. Or this guy tends to get angry when he is like, you know, stressed out. And uh, or he is supposed to be an expert at analytics, but he's doing this for the first time somehow. Anything could happen. So the thing is, you cannot like hire people and force them to, you know, fit into the mold that you hired them for. Sometimes you have to change your expectations. You might hire a person who... Who you thought was really good at A, and then find that he's really good at B and C. So then you have to adapt and you know make the team fit him rather than him forcing him to evolve into the team. So this is what I've understood. I've done this a lot of times before. I've hired before. I've made product strategies, and this is all. But when when you do it for your company and like you're completely responsible for what happens, and the entire thing rests with you, you cannot like you know. Uh, say that, okay, uh, the buck stops with me basically. So we have to take responsibility and be like, yeah, this is what we aim for, but this is what's coming. And this is how we were gonna correct it. So no matter what, how strong your plan is, be be ready to be flexible. I
2: like that. Mike, what's one thing most people don't realize about starting a studio?
0: Awesome stuff from Peter there. Um, and also I wanna echo what Sophie said about um, culture. So when we formed Tailwind, like literally on day one of forming the forming the company, um, myself and my co-founder Gina, um, we just sat, sat down and wrote out our company values. And I don't think very many companies will start with their values. Like so many startups kind of don't even think about them in, until way later on. And that like really helped set the tone for what we we're trying to build. It helped form our name. We, we set the values before we even set the name, right? Um, so that was like really important for us. And then the other thing, that has sort of come through a lot with our recent like fundraising that we've been doing because we talked to a lot of VCs um, has been like, we're not selling a game here. We're not like um, forming this company to make a game. We're doing something far bigger. So we're about the opportunity that we're pursuing in the metaverse, we strongly believe that like this is one um, an aspect of of the future of games, um, and there's so much there in terms of growth, and we want to be like riding that wave, like um and like leading kind of thought leadership in that space. Um, and then the other thing is about, as Sophie said again, like building an amazing team. So when I talk to investors, I'm like focusing on opportunity and team and we have an awesome game that's actually going into play testing like tomorrow. And we're like really proud of what we're building, but yeah, we're like not raising off that. Um, I actually had some advice from, I, th- I think it was Chris Lee actually like um, quite, quite a few years ago. He like said, like, if you're gonna be um, founding a studio Um make sure that you're like assembling like a a world class sort of team of co-founders around you um, and that you're kind of um world class in a few areas. Like um um, don't feel like you need to do everything, but like really cover like a few of the bases like really well and then you can kind of bring the other talents in. But make sure you have that kind of core skill set. Um yeah. And finally, um something that most people don't realize as well is that um it kind of contradicts my like previous point slightly, but I'm no longer a game designer. So I've been a game designer for 15 years and I've always seen myself as a game designer. And like we like founded this studio and we were like, right, we've got game design production, which is me. We've got like an amazing tech guy an amazing um, um, art director. And then like th- like one of the best operations and like people people that I've ever met who's Gina, my co-founder. Um, and like very quickly within the first week I'm not doing game design anymore because there's so much to do when you start a company. Like I would say Max does a lot more game design than I do. as tech director because I've just got there's like so much biz dev and like just a lot of emails like 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 I'm half my life is like even meetings or emails and like as much that, that, that's something that a lot of people maybe don't think about but yeah you like start a company and the like biz dev side is a lot
2: yeah it's amazing and usually it changes over time too like you you get a new role you know every year that your company progresses further too so you know you're learning this because it's the most important thing for your company. And then next year, you're learning something completely new and uh, you, you just got to be willing to roll with it. Um, cool. Uh, so you mentioned co-founders, and I think this is something that you know I believe in. I personally want to invest in a company that doesn't have co-founders because I think that it is so hard to do it alone uh, without the support because there are times when it just sucks and it's going to be tough like really tough and having someone that you can completely kind of trust and rely on, I think is essential. So within that context of co-founders, you know, what I would say, like roles, do you guys think are crucial to being able to start a studio? Like if, you know, this is the maybe minimum that I would say you could start with and maybe this is the ideal team. Um, Peter, do you want to take that one first?
1: Yeah. So um, I probably took a very unconventional route to this. So the thing is, uh, I'm a generalist. I, I was right now making some animation. Okay. Uh, professionally, the last job I had was being a product manager. Uh, I've done game design. I've done, I've been a producer for five years. And so basically I've done every job professionally, except for being a QA. I simply don't have the <laughs> level of patience. Um, and the thing is, the, my co-founder is also a generalist. He started off as an artist. He's an amazing artist, right? Uh, and um, what happens is that he has a lot of experience managing teams and building uh, companies from scratch. And kind of, it was that me and him combined together kind of covered all the bases. So what we thought was like we have these two generalists who are like you know two sides of the yin yang, and uh, you know he's older, he has more experience, and he's wiser. And I am younger and I have more energy and I have less fear, while he has, like you know, uh, his wisdom. Uh, and like sometimes I run too fast and he is there to stop me. And sometimes he is not taking ball strokes, but I am there to take those ball strokes. So there is this synergy between us that really works. So we thought that you know the two of us are there, and then we thought that we'll hire people and we don't bring them in straight up as co-founders because that's a huge commitment. We hire them as employees, we work with them, they grow with us. And at some point if they are, you know, really integral to the team, we move them into the, you know, you can have a co joining you two or three years, you know, uh, later. So the thing is, I have people in my team who I believe would eventually become a co-founder. They don't know it yet. They'll know it when it is time. So uh, we're like, uh, we want all of these guys to grow up and become, like you know, parts of the the core part of the team. So we're going to be very cautious about this, uh, about you know, letting in people. Having a co-founder that doesn't really work out can break a company that is otherwise perfect, and we have had experience with this. Okay, so we want to play it very safe we're basically hiring people who can be amazing. And if they are amazing and they are like indispensable, they're going to be co-founders eventually. That's the approach that we're taking right now. Interesting.
2: Sophie, what do you think about this one?
3: Yeah, so I'll come in here because uh, on my side, I didn't have a case of co-founders, of course, but I did think about it uh, when I started the studio. And I, I could I know because we were at Voodoo several studios starting, uh, and I could see different ways. Uh, uh, and I would say a classic way is like you are the lead and then you surround yourself with a team and then you take everything on your shoulder. Uh, I did differently where actually from the beginning I knew, although we were just few, I don't know, three, four people and hardly the tech leader that, that were the, and of course a very strong designer, a senior designer, but no no lead designer because when there's no game, I didn't see the point of having at this point a lead designer, but athlete to uh, lead, I would say the product thinking in terms of art and tech as well. And it was a good call because uh, then uh, quickly I could uh, put all my efforts and attention in the things that I'm supposed to do. So we talked about the different roles you have to do. So sometimes, some days I was producer, tester, or a marketer, whatever the the studio needs, or a recruiter. And then you can rely on people who are really strong to support you and also then develop the others. So now these days we have a system in our team. So we are 14 where my reports, direct reports are the leads. So either senior designer, lead tech lead and I named promoted a co-lead. So he was my product manager. I worked with him since long time and I work closely with them and then they really want also to grow in the studio. So then they are leads as well in their craft and can also do a lot of things. So it's a system that is autonomous and works by itself. And also we're much more focused and attention and I don't have to manage, I don't know, 13 people, but in the end it's four or five and they get to also lead other people and it works like like a a nice machine. Um, So uh, I would say behind the co-founders question is being able to trust and lean uh, on others because I found myself in a situation where I had no idea how to solve very difficult situation and in the past I, I would actually deal with it alone to protect the team and then that's my obligation duty but I learned to share actually with this group of colleagues uh, uh, and we found amazing solution and everybody likes to take responsibility and we'll also try to find solution with their own groups. So I think for me, that's behind the technical of the the, the the necessity to have co-founders is more of a mental support, like to not have to deal with things alone. And you are much stronger to have uh, different perspective uh, to tackle uh, hard situations with others.
2: Yeah. So you kind of got into my, my next question there, which was, you know, who should your first hires be? Mike, do you want to take this one?
0: Yeah. I'll just chip in on, on, on the previous questions um, a a little bit as well. Cause I think Mm -hmm. what Sophie said about having that kind of mental support from co-founders is super important. Um, My first, so there's like four of us as co-founders, but my like first co-founder was was Gina, who's my partner in life as well as partner in business. Um, and like that kind of mental support that we get from working on something together and really going after the same goal, like really, really hard is so powerful. Cause like, it just means that like, if you like, like have to work a little bit late to focus on something and like really go after it, you're like not feeling guilty because you're like sort of taking attention away from your partner and all those kinds of things. So that's like really powerful um and I guess yeah um so your 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 latest question then um about who should your first hires be um yeah it definitely flows on quite nicely I would say um uh for us we 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 needed to have like the skill set to prototype a game right so that was like a really important thing so I'm making sure that we kind of covered the bases there so like tech art design, production, but then also people, um, which is unit and operations. And so many games teams just leave that role out and just don't really think about it or focus on it. Um, And then, but the elephant in the room here at this point is money, right? So like, it's like all very well, like thinking of like hiring people. um, And it kind of goes back to the co-founder question, but our approach to not having any money at the start was to also think about not hoarding equity like a dragon so like maybe like not thinking i'm gonna hold on to as much equity as i possibly can i want to have like 60 percent of the company and then we just out it's like you need to think about giving the 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 people that are founding the business with you and they're a big part of the journey give them some real skin in the game um because it serves a couple of benefits it it serves the benefit of it covers that short-term gap where you don't have much money to pay people um like like um so that so that you can like pay them like what they can live on rather than necessarily what they're worth because you just don't have it so you can kind of like give them that like really good equity for taking the risk but then also the motivation that that gives in the long term they're like so committed to the company because like they have such a great upside out of it so i think that like like giving away loads of equity actually can come back to you in the success of the company and like, and really help, help with that. Um, so we're like gonna be doing the same thing with all of our employees as well. Like, like um, making sure that we kind of, um, yeah, um, having that kind of like um, ownership and buy-in from everyone. Um, I think that answers, that, that, that mostly answers it. And then, um, yeah, it's like just about, so if you think about our first 10 people, we like brought on an extra two people for the dev team, an extra two artists, um, a community manager, a game designer, um, and actually our 11th hire, um, is another people person, um, a, um, a, a, a director of people who will now be able to, um, so early on, like build, build the best culture that we possibly can. Um, and like, I make sure that our employees are looked after and really cared about and help the next phase of our growth. Very cool. Um,
2: yeah. Shall we Dwell into the funding question of, you know, should I raise at what point in time should I raise, you know? Um, and I don't know if we want to touch, how much should I raise? Because I think that, you know, very much depends. But uh, I think the general question is like, should I raise money? And when is the right time to start raising money? Um, you know, is it once I've got that, you know, initial team of co-founders, do I wait till I have a prototype, a prototype with KPIs? You know, what what do you guys think? Sophie, yeah. do you want to you wanna try this one? I know you kind of had yeah. the, the booty funding rant, but I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on things if you were to start your own company today.
3: Yeah, it's uh, I've been like uh, switching here and there because I have friends as well who started with uh, fundraising from the, um, from the beginning and some who was uh, personally, and it, it's easy for me to say in theory because I'm not doing it. Uh, so it's just like, if if I had to, that, that would be the plan. Uh, I would bootstrap as long as possible, I think. So I would uh, work with people I have worked with closely, co-founders, we share equity, and I would take the time without the pressure, like where we have the money and so on, where we take a bit on our savings to to live. And there are many tools you can use as well to prototype something quickly. You set up a campaign on Facebook, you can test a lot of things. So we would just do it by ourselves to prototype and have something good and that a bit of traction. And this is where I would start to raise actually, to then to start to grow a team and build the bigger team around this product so we could push it to launch. Um, Why is that? well, uh, I I I think there's a lot of uh, attention as well and focus. Uh, not loss, but it, it takes a lot of energy to go raise funds, make the pitch, and so on. And that's where I would rather have my intention for the beginning, really, in having a solid uh, product with a solid team, and and then actually also this is where I would raise probably uh, interesting amounts when I already have traction. Uh, so that's how I would do. But uh, time will tell uh, when I, I'm actually doing it <laughs> yeah
2: yeah Mike I know, I know you just finished doing some fundraising and stuff what's what's
0: your take and am I know my not fundraising Tom <laughs> um we're yeah so I'm, I'm going to do something that you probably don't usually hear people do I'm going to be really transparent with our numbers and things like I'll, I'll probably get in trouble for doing this but I think it's quite refreshing like so someone a company that i really look up to is space ape over in london um they like host these events um called game called games first and like it was one of the things that inspired me to become a founder actually was like the 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 talks there and listening to some amazing people and just how open they are with sharing things and leveling up the industry and, and the community and it's something that like we want to be doing as well um so yeah so a little bit of background into January to today for us. So it was like me and Gina put a little bit of money in to like pay our other co-founders a bit to sort of get that going. Um, and then we got on this Roblox accelerator program, um, which they like didn't take any equity um, because they benefit by having better studios on the platform because they get a good cut of the revenue anyway. So it's in their interest to just sort of support studios like ourselves who are starting out. So we got 40K from that. Um, and 12 weeks of like really great masterclasses and connections and meeting Roblox people um, and other developers and integrating into the community. Um, And that like 40K allowed people in our team to eat and it allowed us to bring on a few contractors and accelerate the, um, the progress of our game. And then during that period, um, we, 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 updated our LinkedIn to say, Hey, we're doing this venture. Um, and then some angels kind of cold outreach to us. So this guy called Joachim Akron, um, who's like really big on LinkedIn. He posts some amazing content. He runs this, um, th- th- this website called elite game developers. I highly recommend you check out elite game developers and also his podcast. He's, he's amazing. Um, so yeah, so he reached out and he's like, Hey, I'm interested in this. Can I invest with my syndicate? Um, so his syndicate ended up putting in about two hundred thousand um, dollars, and we got some amazing people from that syndicate. Like, I like won't name them, but there's like a lot of people in there who add so much value for us in in like in loads of different ways. And it's like having all these industry experts just cheering us on in the background. Um, and 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 that that was part of a bigger pre-seed raise, which we closed in end of March. And in total, it was eight hundred thousand um, dollars at a four million. Uh, post money valuation Um, and amongst that other 800k there was some of the best angels you could possibly wish for on your cap table so we uh, managed to get Chris Lee on board um, who's like really sort of well known as like being this like almost benevolent kind of um, angel. And he just talks to us every day and like really supports us. He really helped to fill the rest of the um, the the rest of, the, of the cap table for us. So he's opened every door that we would ever want opened. Um, and like, I guess, so we ended up getting like 13 kind of different angels during that phase. And they all add value in different ways. Some early stage, some like are quite quiet at the moment, but we know that there's some really good value sort of later on that we can get from them. And they, they're just on board cheering us on. Um, so that was a kind of, I would definitely recommend working with angels if you're kind of pre-revenue and you don't have like, because um, as like Sophie was talking about traction, I completely agree. And, but the thing is there's a lot of money out there in the market willing to put into exciting new ventures. So angels are like always looking out for a great opportunity to sort of back if the team's right and the opportunity's right. And then, now, then the really interesting thing is that once we kind of got that track, we, we, we closed that round, um, had this um, $800,000, we're able to grow the team to 10, build this great team, demonstrate some traction, get our first game to a point. We like um, did this kind of PR launch with um, GI.biz. We kind of did like some interviews and things. And then our, email, our inbox is flooded with messages from VCs. Um, and the last two months has just been like back to back talking to vcs all the time like learning from some really smart people um kind of almost iterating on our strategy slightly on the fly so like there was things we wanted to do in terms of like a publishing side of the business in terms of potentially working on other platforms beyond just roblox as well and as you talk and have these conversations with some really smart people it helps evolve what you think you need to do to sort of take the business to that next level and sort of what things to focus on. Um, And yeah, so long story short, we've been talking with a lot of great people and I'll say it, Today we're like basically closing around um, with some fantastic partners, like the like really really great funds who are going to be um, working with us, and we're like raising over three million dollars um, for this kind of round. So that'll be like eight months to get to a lot of money, um, and we're really excited a to not have to like fundraise anymore for quite a while, not to be able to focus on the things you want to focus on and B just for what we can do with these funds in terms of the amazing hires we can bring in the amazing partners we can work with. Um, Yeah. So it's going to be, it's going to be good.
2: That's super exciting. Congrats. So I I know we've only got uh, a little more time here, so I'm going to jump around with questions a little bit. Um, one that, uh, someone uh, was curious about, and Peter, maybe you can answer this one of those, I'll give it to Sophie, but uh, what is the major difference in setting up a studio for a large corporation uh, versus starting one as an owner?
1: Uh, Can I go first? Yeah. So I I have worked in studios which are owned by large corporations. I haven't set up one, but there is a definite difference in why so uh, the as much as possible I've worked in small startups and what I've seen is that uh, I get to wear a lot of different hats and you have a much bigger you know impact on the uh, future of the company and the product itself and, so. and uh, that kind of gives you a lot of agency and uh, you let, get to learn a lot much faster and the thing is for me at least uh, it's much more risky sometimes a lot more stressful but it is way more gratifying for me having being able to build something up and having creative control over it. And then, you know, creating this thing that you appreciate, which came out of your brain and looks awesome and plays fun. Uh, that is, that is really gratifying. And the thing is, when you work for a big company, it can feel a little mechanical as in, like you know, uh, you're just a cog in the hu- infinitely huge machine. And you just uh, are doing things uh, that you've been told to do. And you feel that at some point you don't have that level of agency, and even if you do your best, you know it doesn't make a big enough impact on the outcome. It kind of uh, you know uh, drains some of the gratification out for me. So I've always loved working in smaller companies, and uh, I kept working in small startups. And I, uh, the moment it gets to a point where there are like more than a hundred employees, I kind of lose interest because like you know that. Interesting phase of growing it from nothing to something is now over. And it kind of helped me uh, set, set up this studio now because this is the exact kind of experience I needed to build a studio from scratch. Yeah.
2: Sophie, anything you would add from your experiences?
3: Uh, in the case of Voodoo, uh, I think it's pretty unique to the culture because it's, uh, we are quite independent as studios. I mean, we. The way I could describe it is like my relationship with a leadership is really more as an like an accelerator, not even an incubator. So when you have traction, you have something that is good, and it's like a full steam scale and growth, uh, which can be also quite fast and intense. Um, so, so I would say here at least the difference I appreciate uh, because I could uh, like have gone uh, starting my own company. I actually appreciate it to go directly in starting the studio and not having to raise funds and worrying about that so that was for me a, a good alternative i wanted to try it out because that's the part i enjoy the most uh, like building a team building a studio building a culture so if i had the opportunity to go straight in uh, without like doing the whole admin which i have been on the company before and i know and i don't like that part but i know it's necessary um uh, that's, that's that could be the advantage of it if you are willing to let go a little bit of this autonomy. So I think it depends, right? For me, I was fine with, uh, of course, making still games under voodoo as long as I have uh, full freedom on the how. That was my personal choice. I
2: love that. Cool. Okay, uh, another question. So uh, this comes from someone that's a little bit more on like the business or marketing side of games. Um, and they're kind of curious, you know, if, if they want to start a studio, um, a few questions like, how do you convince, you know, other people to kind of join you on the adventure? Would you consider hiring a full team or outsourcing kind of those, you know, early prototype stages? And I think we were to cover this, but, uh, specifically what types of people would that person kind of need? I assume it would be like tech art and probably someone on the game design side of things um but uh mike do you want to take this one
0: yeah i'll like quickly touch on the the part which is how do you convince people to join you on the adventure because i think that's like the most fun one so i'm just going to sort of focus on that i'm going to cheat a little bit Love. um yeah that is like i would say that being really passionate about what about what the opportunity is and what you're trying to do like really believing in it and knowing your shit, pardon my swearing um, and like just conveying that vision and expressing that to everyone. And I think you can really get a lot of buy-in in that way. Um, also we, t- we spoke a, quite a lot about company culture. I think that, 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 that that's really important. Um, making sure that you're kind of building an inclusive culture. Um, we like to say that Tailwind are building a culture of kindness. Um, something else, which we think has given us a bit of an unfair advantage here is that Gina and I always wanted to start a company with a four day working week. Um, but like going really big on it and not like saying right four day working week but you work two, two hours extra day it's like no no it's four it, it, um, so it's like four day working week um, normal hours market rate salaries like not like compromising on anything um, and just like really believing in that and we found that our, our staff are really happy they're like rested they're able to contribute to society um, they're able to yeah, and, and we're hoping that, that it's going to be really good for attention and it's already been quite good for, for recruitment, um, plus like sort of um, um, making people feel like owners as well. So I think a combination of all of those things is hopefully going to enable us to sort of convince some really good talent to be on this journey with us.
2: Yeah, I love that. I think that's part of the, re- the reason that you should start with your core values and your vision and extrapolate on what that is, so that you can really share that with people and get them excited about. You know where you're going and why you're going there. Um, so I love that, um, Sophie. Anything you would uh, add to this one?
3: No, I would actually say quite the same. I mean, a lot of people join us as well. When uh, I mean, it was the first casual studio in hyper casual company it was not uh, super appealing for a casual profiles to join hyper casual company. However, uh, having a discussion when they hear about the culture of the environment because they have had experiences where where they know how it could look like when they don't have the right environment and there's some trauma. I think actually it's very, very strong reason to join and you you attract the right people as well who care about uh, that. So I, I would just double down on what Mike just said. Cool.
2: Peter, I've got a, a couple fun ones for you, but we'll, we'll start okay. with this one. Um, what kind of leader would your team describe you as? And what does good leadership mean to you, your managers and your teams?
1: Okay, uh, I'll start with, uh, I'm not supposed to know this, but I heard from my co-founder that one of my guys told my co-founder that, hey, uh, Peter knows everything. So it's not like, you know, anybody can fool him. I'm like, okay, (laughs) that is weird. So what I've been doing is that I've, since the beginning of my career, I've had my hand in every cookie jar like i do art i do uh, you know development i do game design everything and the reason i did that was as a producer and as a product manager i need to be able to understand what my team is going through but uh, it kind of came across in a different manner to some people uh, the thing is when something is not uh, let's say i'm getting art and the quality is not good enough i might just jump in and like you know polish it a bit but i can't do art on my own but i can like help it improve quality so i'm very hands on and the thing is, when I do like this, uh, it could. Uh, there's a very fine line between being hands-on and helping people. And there's once you cross the line, you're like literally threatening people and being insulting to them because uh, you know they submit something and you just jump in and like, hey, this is what I would do. And that kind of can be really jarring. But if you can do that properly, and convince your team that you know I'm not here to contradict you or make you look bad, I'm here to help you, you know, improve. And I make it very clear that you know when I take their work and put some polish on it, I'm just you know building upon their huge work they have done 95, percent and I'm looking at how can we hit the rest of the five percent. I'm maybe putting in the 0.5 percent, and I want them to take them up, take that up, and like amplify it and get it to 99. You know, and that is what we want to go for. And there is this um, format in Indian classical music that we call jugalbandi which is when, which is when like you know an artist a singer or a violinist plays a bit okay plays a motif a musical motif and another musician takes it up modifies it remixes it and uh, creates something new with it and throws it back at the original guy and he takes that again builds upon that motif and the music like it's improvisation improvisation it's live on stage and it just builds up and at the end if you ask who made that product right you cannot point at one of these musicians and say he made it or that the other guy made it. And I want the entire team to work in that manner. So at, at some point, right, it is not my art and his code. It is our game. Right. And that is what I'm trying to uh, pull off. And it's a very thin red line that I walk on. Right. If I, you know, if I don't do this right, I can be, you know, threatening to others. Like the guy who said that hey, Peter knows everything, he's got his hand in everything, so you cannot fool him. I'm not trying to prevent them from fooling me. I trust them, right? I'm trying to you know, <laughs> amplify their quality. And uh, so this is, uh, I, I want to do this properly and without threatening people or any alienating them. And for that, I have to be their best friend first. So this is a very risky, very hands-on, very uh, you know difficult way of managing a team. I do not want to be a, um, what do you call it, a micromanager. But I still want to be like you know with everybody doing everything and like helping everybody. So this is what I'm trying to be. Sometimes I do make mistakes, but I'm getting better at it. Yeah.
2: Mike, how do you prioritize projects for your teams? And how do you prioritize your own tasks within a given time period?
0: Wow, good question. Um... Yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, yeah, to, to, is an understatement. Um, we, we prioritize tasks for our teams on JIRA. So we kind of do like, as, as most game studios do, um, we like work in agile um, and we kind of work in sprints and we kind of have a roadmap and we work on that. Um, and we have some fantastic leads who are, um, who are kind of like driving that process when I can't do it. Um, uh, and yeah, the way I prioritize my tasks is usually frantically on a notepad and obsessively like every morning just like write like um what are the, pro- are the tasks today and it's like it's a lot of bouncing it off my co-founder Gina as well we're very much a team in this like we're like always checking in communicating aligning I think alignment is is kind of the key there um so yeah um I guess that's it so like product tasks uh, oh actually this is going to be like kind of and like inside track into my mind but i'm kind of a lot of my tasks are kind of responding to emails right so i'll like read an email and then i'll mark it as unread and then i kind of know that that's a priority task that needs an action and like a lot of my like day is kind of done in that way it's like right and 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 then if, if there's three or four like really important ones that just have to be done because there's like some like um some kind of someone's being blocked or like that there's like a big deadline that's going to be missed because of it then i'll like generally write them in a notepad and just put loads of exclamation exclamation marks and stars and underline it and that will hopefully like uh, nudge me and if it's really really important then i'll stick it into my google calendar mark it as red and just be like do this mike now
2: i love it i I leave my emails unread because there's unread they just drive me bonkers until i do them but then i'll go do that 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 task. i love it sophie uh, fun one for you and then we'll have kind of one more question that I'll go through with all of you guys because I think it's so key um, but Sophie uh, what is a big mistake that you made that you now know you should have approached differently?
3: Um, yeah it happened actually end of last year when uh, well we were uh, with our game Plantopia it was in South launch. Uh, we had also you know, change of management, a bit more, uh, I would say, a follow, a closer follow-up on the performance of the game where where uh, things going. So it was a lot of pressure end of last year. Uh, a bit of hard deadline as well, like, okay, you have to make it in a, a month or uh, maybe we don't continue the game. So it came a bit as a surprise. And I took a lot on me. So I was really stressed without uh, actually acknowledging or uh, even uh, understanding that I was stressed and I was uh, trying to control or thought that I had the control like okay let's do everything to save the them I believe in it uh, we just are lacking of time and trying to be everywhere but then the thing I, I realized that I was spreading this stress to uh, the team although I thought that uh, so I was also not sharing openly as well the situation because I, I didn't want everybody to also know what was our deadline that was also uh, on them uh, but it was on me because it was just I was just stressed so any of my discussions the way I talk, the way I approached uh, meetings the way I present things it was everywhere and the, the big learning and big mistake for me was uh, that I cannot uh, hide and I, I can actually people are adults and they can handle much more than sometimes what we tell ourselves, uh, especially the ones that I name as colleagues. And then I, at some point I started like, look, I'm not doing well. I, I, I feel overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. And I started to share. And actually there were people really solid to be here listening. We will find solution. We do what we want and started to share. I think that was my main big learning to, uh, again, lean on others, so not the whole team, but the ones who were the closest and had responsibility so we could find the best solution. Uh, And uh, I haven't done this before, and for a long time, I was like, I'm just going to hold it, and I will be the sponge. And actually, the big learning is that I don't have to do this because uh, that's part of the trust as well you do with the group you can share as well the hard times and talk about the hard things and you do your best. And if you don't manage, at least you did your best as a group. So it's as well switching the mindset about the outcome. We don't control everything, but we control what we have control on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I really appreciate that, honesty. Okay. So final question here, because I know we're a little over time, but I think this is so important. And again, we're going to talk about culture here a little bit, but go listen to the, the Rise and Play masterclasses. It's, it's astounding. I, I love it, um, but a uh, final question for each of you. Um, how would your team describe your company culture and what are you doing to facilitate stimulating and developing that culture in your teams? So Mike, do you wanna take this one first?
0: Yeah, um, I think the one word that I would maybe use would be trust. I think that's like really, really important to us. Like, um, if I actually like read our values out, like, um, it, uh, like there's, there's like, um, positive impact. There's like sustainability. Um, like those are the, like two of the kind of like, um, big ones that we have on there, but also, yeah, like, like, like creating an environment of trust where, um, kind of similar to what, um, Peter was saying earlier. I like really liked how he was talking about like almost, um, I'm, I'm like paraphrasing him here, but like, Kind of having no ego and um the like best idea wins and like not micromanaging people, um those kind of themes I, I like think are quite important to us, um so yeah like trust. Love it, Peter.
2: Oh, Peter, you still with us?
3: Seems to lag. Like, yeah. Okay.
2: Sophie, would you like to go next? How would your team describe your company culture, and what are you doing to facilitate stimulating and developing culture in your teams?
3: Yeah, so from the beginning, of course, I spent some time as well on the values. uh, And I won't go through them uh, for this question, but at least the main ones I see that are really unique to your team is this passion for learning like growth mindset it's really part of us like we everything is an experiment we love to learn we love challenges we embrace it we debate really hard sometimes on finding the best solution and it's not for everyone so that's one of the i think the things that define really our team we are really passionate and want to learn and grow and the second thing is like we are also a very diverse team uh, culturally in background in personality and the second, I would say, core value we have and we live is of uh, intellectual humility in the sense that we value a lot different opinions or differences. The fact that we may come from a different place, it's our strength and not be threatened by it, but really then, you know, be, be drawn to it. And that's also one of, I would say, our, our unique traits as a team. And how we cultivate it, I uh so there, words are words and you can put it, of course, on the document and then people like remember and forget, but it's in all the actions. So for me, it starts with me. It starts also with the people I hire. So I, I use this filter with the people who value that already so they don't have to adopt a culture. They are already like that. So then it has a spread effect because everyone is like this and they interact with each other. And uh, I, I would say culture is kept as well by uh eliminating behaviors that don't support the thing that are your values right so sometimes people are just you know it's stress or uh, you know things things get off of the rail and uh, it's important not just for me but uh key people in the team i expect from leads producer to call out as well when there are behaviors that are not acceptable and it's not to say the person is bad but Sometimes it can go a bit far and then this is where we uh, remind what is our culture to maybe I don't know not interrupt people or you know to let everybody talk as well in a meeting to share the point of view, things like that.
2: Fantastic. Peter, would you like to go next? How would your yeah. team describe your company culture?
1: Right. So um, here's the thing. Uh, when we started the company, the first thing I did was you know set up my motion and started this page that said, you know, the culture page, right? And uh, the first hire actually came in uh, four weeks after that. And the company's brand was not finalized until another eight weeks from then. So this is the first thing we did. And uh, what I ended up doing is that me and the co-founder working together, Joshi working together, we ended up making a big document, which was like impressive. But then it's like you know, um, you need to reduce this. This is not like you know, culture is not a list of rules, and it's definitely not uh, you know, pages and pages of philosophy. Uh, culture is uh, is only real when it manifests in our actions. So we kind of like you know distilled it down to uh, some sort of a ten commandments thing, and uh, we found that it's still unreal. We thought like we'll print it out, put it on the walls. And, uh, you know, you don't put those posters on the walls. It has to get embedded in here. And the thing is, whenever we make decisions, whenever we work with, you know, deal with somebody else, or when we have crisis situations, when we are arguing with somebody, that's when these things come into play. And you can't have a 10-point list of how you should act, you know, uh, in your mind at all times. It simply doesn't work. And then I stumbled onto this, um, you know, philosophy, this African philosophy of Ubuntu, right? And uh, we realized that this is perfect. This is literally what we were trying to do. If you wanted to distill the entire thing into one single word, then this is that word, Ubuntu. And uh, what it means is that, you know, every person in human society, right? Not just my team in human society is who he is because of everybody around him, right? There is no human that exists alone and the human existing, working, creating and succeeding alone It's impossible. It's contradictory. It's not who we are. We cannot have a fence with just a single fence post. Right? It doesn't make a fence. It's useless. It might look good. Technically, that is possibly a fence of like, you know, uh, two centimeters width, but it's not doing anything. That is what a human is if he doesn't, you know, play together with others, right? It's a football team of just a goalie, right? The best you can do is not get <laughs> screwed so bad. like, not get, you're not going to win though, you can defend. So uh, it makes a lot of sense for me to, you know, tell my team and I've been like slowly, you know, disseminating this and trying to bring this up and uh, trying to uh, make people understand what it means. And the thing is, this has always been uh, there in the way me and my co-founder has like, you know. Uh, well, like behaved with others and we believe that no matter even if you distill, distill it down to one word and teach people this the best way to actually instill culture in an organization is to behave in a way that is compatible with that you know um, philosophy to that culture and if I behave in that manner everybody who looks up to me will behave in that manner so I need to do the right thing and I need to make up that pe- make sure that people look up to me and copy me so basically, that's how it is. And uh, culture is going to be something that continuously evolves. So you know, if I ask my team what the company's culture is right now, probably everybody will have a different answer. Okay, And I believe that at, at no point will everybody perceive the company in the exact same way. And these answers will keep changing, and that's OK. right? Everybody sees the same thing in a completely different angle. And that is fine, as long as they're all being nice to each other, playing together well, and building a game together, I'm fine with it. Yeah, and that's that's, that's all I have. That's great. That yeah, was awesome. I, I love you. that. Just to
2: just to add a little color, because I think this is so important, and it's something that I learned, like with the first company that I started, where I was kind of always on the mindset of, you just got to go fast, and you got to like you know get things done. And so the idea of spending time to like figure out a vision or a culture things like that just seemed uh, why am i going to waste my time doing that um similarly you know that first company i I also did things like well why am i going to spend all this extra time when writing code to try to make it like reusable or like you know readable dry like i just got to go fast right why am i going to take time to do automated testing in my code you know all of these things came back to hunt me later right Um, by not making that code reusable, like maintaining it and long-term update, like it was just awful. had to be like a basically complete rewrite took way more time than it would have had I done the right thing along the way, not having automated testing that works fine for a little while until things start breaking and you don't know where or why, and you've got to like go back through and add all, it's just like such a pain. And, uh, you know, another thing I was playing around with uh, a compound interest calculator. Uh, and I think more than anything vision, you should think about it as like the interest rate that you're going to get on how your company is going to grow. Like I was playing around and the difference between like a 6% interest rate to a 7% it came out to be like 20, $30 million of added value with that 1% over the lifetime of a company. And I think if you take the time to dictate that vision, which gives you this lens to filter everyone on the same goal, the same direction. You know, there's always going to be hundreds of things that your team could do at any point in time, but there's only a few things that you're going to do that's actually going to help you move forward with that, you know, vision and actually achieve those things. And so by having that, it allows you to move forward in a laser focused way to actually achieve that outcome that you're trying to do. Um, and I think if you have that, and you use core values, and you're using those to find the right people, focus them on the right thing, your interest rate is not going to be the, the 2%, 3% that you get by not doing that, it's going to be more like 30% or 50%. And it's just going to build and build and build upon itself for your company. So um, I, I always say start there, just like Mike did day one, you know, figure out your core values and and, and use that to kind of drive everything. So. Guys, this has been uh, so great. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, if folks do have any, you know, questions afterwards, you know, are there, you know, good ways to get in contact with each of you?
1: Yeah, you can just, uh, you know, DM me on LinkedIn. and there.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, same. As long as you're not trying to sell me anything.
3: <laughs> yeah, me too. The same. LinkedIn.
0: Yeah.
2: Mike, I'm going to try to sell you two dollars or $1 for $2 uh, in a little bit. I'll shoot you a DM. (laughs) Cool. All right. Thanks, all. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.